Anybody know what day it was yesterday? Tuesday. It was World, World, I heard it, World Kindness Day. What a beautiful day to have, World Kindness Day, which, I, which strangely enough came exactly one week after midterm election day. Now when I see how many Christians got riled up, myself included admittedly at times, about midterm elections, I found it odd when yesterday came on the calendar, I realized this is World Kindness Day. It's interesting because midterm elections was never listed as one of the fruit of the Spirit that could potentially change the world, but kindness was. But a lot of Christians had a lot more hope and a lot more investment in who was going to sit in what office as a hope of that which was going to change our environment and our world around us than we did in one of the things that Paul listed off as a fruit of the Spirit. I think it's time for us to get more excited about World Kindness Day than about midterm elections. I think there holds within that more hope for the transformation of all things. Otherwise, maybe Paul would have listed midterm elections as one of the fruit of the Spirit. A glaring omission? I doubt it. We need a lot of kindness right now, though, don't we? I searched my heart before coming back to this passage in particular today. Because it's very easy for us in like a post-election type of season to realize that we did a lot of language and came up with a lot of things out of our mouths that create an us and a them. We do a lot of things that take just a little bit of the image of God off of somebody to allow us to say things about them or feel things about them that I don't think Jesus would allow us or want us to do. And I fall prey to that all the time. It's so easy to categorize a them. The last time I preached this text, it was at Dort College three and a half years ago. And when I was done, literally thousands of people downloaded that sermon. It's the most popular sermon I ever preached, at least numerically. I got calls asking me for permission to be able to use it in seminaries for training on new preachers. Part of me was a little bit excited about that, maybe even a touch proud. But see, the sad irony is it happened for all the wrong reasons. I used the text to talk about people who are same-sex attracted and how it is that we treat them. And the scandalousness of grace has the ability to offend the most passionate of Christ followers. Everybody wanted to listen to a sermon because it was all about somebody else and not them. I get more requests to preach about homosexuality than any other topic. Do you know what the ratio is in Scripture of passages that talk about wealth and the dangers of money compared to those that talk about homosexuality in the Bible? 92 to 1. That's the actual ratio. So like if we were going to come up with some sort of modern day lectionary that would do justice to scripture, I would preach 92 sermons on wealth and its danger at corrupting the human heart for every one sermon I would preach on homosexuality. We are so in love with everybody else's sin. 
Wouldn't it be amazing if we were as excited and as hateful towards the sin inside of us as we were as hateful towards the sin inside of everybody else? We don't know what to do with that. Jesus shows us some incredibly dangerous things, putting himself in very strange, awkward, harming, socially disruptive, reputationally damaging places over and over again because his grace is so scandalous. And as we read the early stories of the church through the book of Acts, the disciples' heads keep snapping up again and again. Really? Them? Them? Grace for them? And it keeps going. We are so unkind and we want so badly for the gospel to change in such a way that reflects the way we want to read it and alienate somebody else. That creates an us and a them and not a we because it allows us to treat people differently. It allows us to treat them unfairly, to talk about them like they bear less of the image of God than I do. And it's a dangerous place to be. You see, one day I'm going to have to stand before God and talk about whether or not I loved my neighbor as myself. And I wonder if we grasp the full implications of what that simple summary of the commandments means. Do I care as much for somebody else's children that don't have the same privileges as mine? Because if I don't, I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. Do I care to unfold the person I see on campus who seems left out as much as I do my own roommate and best friend? Because if I haven't, I'm not sure I've loved my neighbor as myself. If I don't care for a child in a migrant caravan in the same extent I care for my own and want the same things for them that I want for my children, I'm not sure I've loved my neighbor as myself. Now, I don't know what the answers to all of those problems are, but I know that I have to start in that place. And I think often we reverse the order in which we're supposed to approach and apply grace and truth. This passage throughout all my life has served as such a corrective to me in that regard, and it challenges me. You see, this was also, also a passage that three and a half years ago changed an entire pattern of Things in my life, I said things about this text that angered a lot of people, and I began to be involved in all kinds of conversations where my ministry credentials got called into question, and complaints were brought to the board of trustees at Dort College about whether or not this was still the gospel, and I was allowed to preach it. And so when I came back to this text today, I came with a lot of fear and trembling and I realize that's where we're supposed to always come towards every text, isn't it? The gospel of Jesus Christ has the ability to disrupt our lives. I think it has to. And if we're not letting it, I'm not sure we're reading it right. Are our hopes still placed in our ability to find a gospel that affirms the things that we already like and already know? Or are we ready to let it disrupt us in new ways? And so as we come to this text today, I want to invite you into it in a different way. In a way that invites each one of us to hate our own sin as much as somebody else's. Where there isn't an us and a them, because one of the things I think that Jesus teaches us in all of his interactions with people 
is that you can believe something very passionately, and in fact, I think you should. I think you should hold your theologically, theological convictions deeply, more deeply potentially than anything else in the world. But what Jesus shows us is that doesn't allow us to treat anybody any differently, regardless of their sin or what they believe. I saw a news article last year after a gay pride parade in Austin, and one of the pastors was standing there, and he had a shirt on that said, Pastor Hugs. And I loved it because it didn't say, I believe this about homosexuality. It just said, Pastor Hugs. And I think that looks a lot like what Jesus would have done. Indiscriminate application of grace. You see, grace has to be completely indiscriminate of what sin somebody has committed or where they come from or who they are. Because sin is the same way. Sin doesn't care if you're rich or if you're poor, whether or not you get cancer. Sin doesn't care what country you come from when it tempts you with lust. Sin is so indiscriminate, it's so unfair. That's part of the nature of sin. And so in order to combat that, grace has to be even more so in its application. Last week, I almost did this. I almost made a t-shirt that said post-election hugs, and I wanted to stand outside of the voting booth and offer to hug every person that came out. Next time around, I might do it. Maybe you should join me. You see, let's be honest with ourselves right now. The church looks really ugly because we haven't figured out how to apply this truth. We want to first apply our theological filter over somebody and then decide how we treat them. And what Jesus shows us in the gospel is that's not the order in the way that it works. And it doesn't matter how much I wish it were different, that is the gospel that I am confronted with. That is the truth of Jesus. I have to love equally my neighbor as myself, anybody who doesn't see the, same world, see the world the same way as I do politically or theologically. And I am required to love them the same This coming in a gospel from a Jesus who taught us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, and showed us time and time again that he was willing to step into spaces and get all kind of reputational mess on him. And Jesus shows us that to be present in a situation does not mean to condemn or to condone, it just means to be present. And if that's not the case, then what the heck was the incarnation about? Jesus came to meet and to invite everyone. And it's the power of the invitation and in the extension of grace and in the scandalousness of its nature that allows transformation on the other side. I'm going to walk through this text with you. It's from John, chapter 7, verse 53 to 8, verse 11. Then they all went home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and then said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Now, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write 
on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. The opening line, we can go back one slide, the beginning of this. Then they all went home. Well, home from where? They've all come to Jerusalem in chapter 7 for the Feast of Booths. This is the feast. It's one of the three mandatory feasts in Judaism. It's required of all good and God-fearing Jews to come back from wherever they were in the ancient world back to Jerusalem to spend time living in temporary shelters to remind them in a form of national consciousness and memory of the time when they were foreigners, when they were refugees, when they were on their way to the promised land. And they would kind of go camping as a country for an entire week. Jesus, in chapter 7, it says, was enticed by his brothers. They wanted him to go. They tell him this in 7 verse 3. Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. They think that Jesus is aspiring to be a public figure. That Jesus' greatest aspiration is to find the most amount of followers possible. What Jesus ends up doing actually is not leaving. He goes, doesn't even leave Galilee to go to Jerusalem until halfway into the feast. And then he kind of sneaks in. They're so worried about being able to be seen doing all the right things. And if you want to be somebody, then be seen doing it. But the heart of God is always revealed when he meets the people who are found in the margins and the places that are left behind and forgotten. The heart of God breaks for the places of a community that aren't enfolded in that community. They're like the sub-communities. They're the ones on the other side of the tracks. They're the people who speak a different language, who come from a different place, who have a sickness or a disease or something that marks them out. They're from some sort of people group that makes them feel a little bit different. And so we get all these stories about Jesus meeting people who are blind and lame and lepers because the heart of God is found most often seeking after the sick and those who are the most aware that they need a savior. What if God is still the most in love and the most in pursuit of those who are the most ready to admit their brokenness? So everybody else goes home and the biggest crowds are gone and now Jesus shows up to do his work. Not aspiring to a spectacle or a crowd, but rather to the broken the brokenhearted, the downtrodden, the cast-offs. Not even those who have received the derision of other people, but those who have even self-inflicted it. Notice in this text it talks about twice this woman was actually caught in the act of adultery. This isn't about a hearsay or reputation or gossip thing. This is about actual sin. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. You've got to understand in the Gospels there are no throwaway lines. Why in the world does John tell us where Jesus went to the Mount of Olives? 
There's some beautiful literary foreshadowing here because the next time Jesus in the Gospel of John goes to the Mount of Olives, he comes back to stand in the way and take the punishment not for one woman who is caught in adultery, but for the bride of Christ who has whored herself out to every idol in the world, myself included. Jesus comes back from the Mount of Olives to protect and stand in the way and receive the affliction upon him for what this woman has done and for what you and I have done. You see, the way we're supposed to read this text is to understand that I am the woman caught in adultery. I have sold Jesus out. I have gone against every law of God. I have broken them. I am the sinner. I am the one who's been caught. Caught red-handed by God time and time again. We want to read this passage and believe, well, I don't want to be like the Pharisees or the teachers of the law. I don't want to be like them. But the reality is the people we are is the adulterous bride of Christ. Caught in adultery. They make such a point of this. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. People who love picking on other people's sin love the tactic of shame, don't they? So they want her to stand in the middle of the group. Look what she's done. Everybody loves everybody else's sin. All that we were as excited about Jesus touching our sin as we were everybody else's. That would be a way for the church to speak today in America, wouldn't it? I think we are at a critical junction point right now. I really do. We are at a historical moment where there are four new ex-Christians for every one new Christian coming to Christ in America today. And I would argue that this is one of the number one reasons why it's happening is because we are not kind. Because we want to put everybody in categories. We want to shame everybody else and not come to terms with our own sin. We have abdicated our ability to speak in healthy ways about sexuality because our sexual brokenness is as bad as everybody else's. Across the board. But we want to point the finger, take the attention off of us, just like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law did here. The law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Such women. Can you hear the us and them language in that? They want to distance themselves from her. She's not one of our people. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are supposed to be caring for the downtrodden and the sick. They're not asking what, what glaring omission existed in her life that she needed so desperately to reach out to something else to find the fulfillment of what she was really looking for. They're not asking that question. They're not caring about her heart. They're caring about their ability to keep their own face and their own polish and their own reputation clean. They, unlike Jesus, will not enter in. One of the great attributes and characteristics of God is that he doesn't just pity people. Pity stands at a distance. Pity is this weird kind of cocktail mix of condescension and care. Pity doesn't get ministry mess on it. Pity stands at a distance. Compassion literally means to suffer with, to enter in. Jesus, at this moment, does a decision to make whether he casts his law with all of those who will cast stones or with the woman who will be left behind. And he makes his decision very clear. And he models for the church that will follow after him a decision that needs to be very clear who we side with in these moments. Such women. There is no us in them. There is only we. And what do you say? They want to test Jesus. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. They want to ignore the whole language about neighbor, loving neighbor as self. They've abandoned it entirely. They don't care about her. 
They care about themselves. And so they set up a trap, not caring about Jesus either, hoping that they can catch him and shame him in the same way that they've drugged this woman in front of the crowd. And their hearts want it to self-justify and throw Jesus under the bus. So interesting, though, too. I listened to sermon notes I'd written down 17 years ago from a sermon preached on this text by a prophet who used to teach here, Sid Helama. He said, it's interesting when you read through this text because this might be the only altar call in all of Christian history where success is defined by leaving and not by coming forward. Isn't that the truth as the story unfolds? He starts to write on the ground. And I hear this language from people all the time, so I find it deeply ironic because Christians still want to say, yeah, but you got to find, where's the place where you still like draw the line in the sand? I'm like, Jesus drew a line in the sand. He bends over and he starts writing in the sand. This is so ironic, isn't it? That Jesus is doing that in this text of all places. You ever wonder what he's drawing? I mean, teachers did this all the time in the ancient world. They don't have whiteboards. They don't have PowerPoint. This is how they would teach. A math teacher would sit down in the dust and he would draw stuff out and everybody would look down and he would show what was happening. Is Jesus drawing a circle and then demonstrating who's in and who's out? Is he drawing a line that's open and unfolding and taking? What is Jesus drawing in this moment? I don't know. But I know that the lines that we want to draw in the sand are always lines that work in our favor. And I don't think Jesus was doing that. And he kept on questioning me, straightens up, and he said to him, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. You find it interesting in this text that it's the older people who leave first, who drop their stone and walk away. Maybe they're just aware that I've been living longer and my pile of sin is a lot bigger than everybody else's, so maybe my debt is that much bigger to be forgiven. Maybe there's a wisdom that comes with realizing how broken you are the older you become. But at the end of the day, it's only Jesus that's left. Billy Graham once said, it's God's job to love, the Holy Spirit's to convict. Or my job to love, the Holy Spirit's to convict, and God's job to judge. Jesus himself honors that same concept and notion. In chapter 7, before this, verse 24, Jesus finishes the teaching by saying, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. This whole passage is about judgment. Right after it again, Chapter 8, verse 15, you judge by human standards, I pass judgment on no one. Guys, ask yourselves, how many times do I judge people? How often does this happen? How black is my heart? How badly did I do this during the election season in the way that I thought about people who think differently than me? Church, wash your face and your hands. Wash your mouth out with soap. I feel like we need like a moment of repentance for all the things that we've done wrong in the middle of this. As we've reversed the order that Jesus models for us in this text of what it means to be confronted with sin. And then Jesus asks her, who's left standing here to condemn you? No one. Can you imagine if the church could play a role like this today? where we learned that it was love that opened the doors to transformation, because do not miss this in the text. When the text finishes, Jesus still says, now go and leave your life of sin. Jesus doesn't leave the sin alone, okay? Forgiveness is incredibly important. You want to go to the next slide? N.T. Wright says it like this. Will you flip ahead for me? 
Being forgiven doesn't mean that sin doesn't matter. On the contrary, forgiveness means that sin does matter, but that God is choosing to set it aside. See, the sin matters deeply, but grace earns its audience. And the only one who had the right to cast a stone chooses not to. And Jesus invites her forward and invites her in. Grace earns its hearing. You and I are the person in this text who has been caught and laid bare. And it's the love of God that has reached out to us and enfolded us and invited us in. It's the love of God that we believe that breaks down barriers. We want to establish churches today where you've got to get yourself cleaned up before you come in. All the while then testifying theologically that we believe the church is the place where transformation occurs. This is still supposed to be a gathering of the sinners. An ability for every time for me to come to a text like this to realize who it is that I am inside of this. And I cannot extend grace that I have not received. And until I get that part of the gospel, I'm going to do a terrible time preaching it and living it out. It's interesting that in our churches we often include patterns of confession and assurance in our worship liturgy. This passage follows the opposite approach. You notice that? It's Jesus' assurance of her that opens up the ability to have a conversation about confession. And I'm convinced that we stand at a historical and cultural moment where the world needs to hear about our love for one another and our love for the world that will invite and open opportunities and doors to have deeper conversations. Because nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Nobody's going to care to hear your voice and will carry no authority until they see that our lives are beautiful and different and they want something to do with us again. And so I think we got some repenting and fixing to do as a church in order to increase our witness. And the weight of our witness and our voice will always depend on our ability to receive grace. You cannot extend what you have not received. You can ask the band to come forward and lead us in closing song. And ask you to sort of receive this and sing this as the church of Christ, the bride of Christ, the woman caught in adultery. Can you sing this with that as your voice? The reminder of who you are, whose you belong to, what price was paid in order to create that opportunity and that freedom, and a reclamation of our identity found only in the powerful love of Christ. Will you sing with me?